On this episode of The Popcorn Diet, we're taking a look at what movies you should be watching this Thanksgiving weekend with a special holiday review recap. Get your popcorn ready. Welcome all you good movie buddies to a special review recap episode of The Popcorn Diet, a podcast for those who live on a steady diet of movie, theater, popcorn, and other delicious movie snacks. As always, my name is Rick Williamson, your very best good movie buddy, and I'm flying solo this week. We're giving David a week off. He's under the weather, so I wanted to give him time to rest and, and get recuperated for the Thanksgiving holidays. So I called an audible after last week. We didn't have an episode, and so I figured now would be a good time to kind of make up for all of that and kind of give myself an opportunity to talk to you about four specific movies that have recently been released in the past couple of weeks to give you an idea of what you can and maybe should be watching during this extended holiday weekend. Now, I am going to do my best to try and mention when something is a spoiler or when I am going to talk spoilers real quickly. This is going to be a shorter episode, mostly because it's just me talking and I don't really know how interesting that is. And frankly, it has been a hot minute since we've done a review recap episode. It's been a long time since we've done an episode like this. I think you'd have to go all the way back to, shoot, I think our early, like, our first 50 episodes maybe before we did a review recap. And it was always designed to to kind of recap some of the movies that have come out recently that maybe didn't get their own episode or or couldn't get their own episode for whatever reason, and just me kind of talking about them for a little bit. So I have four movies that I want to talk about on this episode, and those four movies are Ghostbusters Afterlife, Red Notice, Home Sweet Home Alone, and King Richard, which I feel is a real, like, perfect gamut of every different type of movie that you could watch this holiday season. And we will start with Ghostbusters Afterlife. Now, this one is this one's really interesting because much has been made of this Ghostbusters sequel. Um, much has been made about the callbacks and the nostalgia that fuel Ghostbusters Afterlife. There have been people who absolutely love it, who feel as if that inner child has been taken care of and has been spoken to and there are people who absolutely hate it who think that the type of nostalgia in this movie is the bane of our society and to be completely honest I'm pretty in the middle about it I was I don't think I was alive when the first two Ghostbusters movies came out and I didn't mind the 2016 one although much of what caused the pushback for the all-female-led 2016 Ghostbusters reboot was claimed to be that that film rejected the previous ones and was a full-blown remake. It, it existed in a world that Bill Murray's Ghostbusters never existed in, and it kind of followed that storyline beat for beat. Now, I mean, you can say... You can, you can not like the 2016 Ghostbusters all you want. I personally thought it was perfectly fine. I thought the uh, all of the actresses playing Ghostbusters, Kristen Wiig, Kate McKinnon, um, Melissa McCarthy, all, they, I thought they all did an excellent job. My biggest issue with that movie is that I don't feel like it respected the, the world building and the science and the logic that you have to build when you're building a sci-fi fantasy. You know, We've already been conditioned to understand that the proton packs the Ghostbusters wear 
capture the ghosts and really kind of snare them in, and then they get locked in a trap. Whereas this 2016 movie, they kind of just killed the ghosts. You know, there's a really cool moment where Kate McKinnon has, you know, pistols and is kind of just whipping ghosts around, and they're kind of laying there dead, and that was something that took me out of this. This movie... You know, my relationship to the OG Ghostbusters is that they're, I really like them. I like them both. I think the second one is is not nearly as good as the first. Um, but I enjoyed both of them plenty. I think the, the, the funniest thing is that there are these movies about these adult men who are borderline con artists who kind of stumble into being able to actually capture and store and quantify ghosts and the kind of irreverent, kind of potty mouth, Saturday Night Live, cynical, sarcastic kind of humor that went into this, you know, kind of sci-fi, comedy, adventure, horror movie. Um, but I, I love Ghostbusters. I love the original Ghostbusters. And as far as nostalgia goes, I mean, there, there are really two camps about it. You know, is, is it all right to recognize the joys of the past? Is it dangerous to get caught up in it? I think those are really interesting questions to ask people. Uh, Last Night in Soho, for example, which came out not too long ago, actually deals directly with the dangers of nostalgia and viewing things through rose-colored glasses without being able to recognize what something actually represented or what something actually was. So the fact that they took this franchise that had Bill Murray and this really sarcastic tone and this really funny tone and made it into almost a old-fashioned, amblin, young kids, you know, in, in some type of adventure, way over their heads type movie, I think it's kind of interesting. I think it doesn't really apply to the last Ghostbusters movie, but I think it's kind of interesting. And I enjoyed it, you know. I enjoyed the Goonies meets Ghostbusters kind of combination that this film achieved. I didn't personally think that the callbacks to the past necessarily damaged what was being done with the characters uh, being played by McKenna Grace or Finn Wolfhard or, or some of the great child actors. McKenna Grace is phenomenal in this movie. I thought she did an excellent job. I thought Finn Wolfhard did an excellent job. I think everybody in the movie, all the actors and performers are doing an excellent job. And there are certain callbacks. There are people who are incredibly almost militantly, almost violently nostalgic for the OG Ghostbusters. And I think this movie has tries to have its cake, tries to eat it true, tries to show respect to the OG Ghostbusters because this does exist in a world where those Ghostbusters movies happen, where Peter Venkman, you know, Ray Stans, Egon Spangler, Winston Zeddemore, they those four Ghostbusters really fought the ghosts 30-some-odd years ago, right? Um, and... It, Essentially, the first half of this movie is kind of that coming of age, you know, discovery type of movie. And then the second half of the movie moves into the the, the, the Force Awakens or the Jurassic World style of basically soft remaking the first movie following very similar beats, but with new characters and, and going through that with just a slightly different type of prism. And honestly, I didn't mind it. I, I had a good time with it. I thought it was reasonably funny. I thought the performances were reasonably well. Carrie Coon, if you guys don't know who Carrie Coon is, she's one of the best actresses working today, but she's by no means a super-duper star. Um, she plays the mother, you know, the kind of the, not really a deadbeat mother, but kind of a deadbeat mother, honestly. Um, and Paul Rudd plays the aspiring Ghostbuster 
science teacher teaching uh, summer school. And I think it's got a good amount of, of, of ghost busting. You know, I think some of the ghosts in the movie are, are, are pretty cool, pretty rad. I think the, the effects were really fun. Um, I, I do think like it, it'll be interesting to see if and where Ghostbusters goes from here because, uh, you know, Columbia Pictures, Sony Entertainment, they have a division in their filmmaking, you know, houses called Ghost Corps um, or Ghost Corps or, or however you want to pronounce it. That is dedicated to developing more Ghostbusters IP, you know, more Ghostbusters content. So there's always a little bit of cynicism when that's involved, but I'm interested to see where they go with it, honestly. I will say, though, you know, there are, there are a lot of similarities. So if you're looking for something brand new, you're not going to get it. I do want to talk really quickly about a spoiler here. For Ghostbusters Afterlife. So if you if you don't want to be spoiled about Ghostbusters Afterlife at all, jump to the next uh, jump to the next time code in the description of the episode. Jump to when we start talking about Red Notice. But the rest of what I'm going to talk about in uh, in Ghostbusters is going to be a spoiler. I will give it a popcorn rating of movie theater popcorn. I think movie theater popcorn. Pretty good, pretty solid. You should definitely see it on the big screen. It made 40-something million dollars, which is actually a pretty good opening. And uh, and I enjoyed it. I think you could do worse. I think it's got just enough to be scary to kind of challenge kids. But it's it's mostly a kid's movie. It's mostly made for 8, 9, 10, 11-year-olds. Um, and it's got stuff that the adults who liked the old Ghostbusters will definitely feel nostalgic for. But as far as spoilers go... There is one big thing that obviously me talking here by myself can't really have a dual sided conversation or multi sided conversation about. But I am interested to hear from you, the listeners, and you can always hit us up on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter at the Popcorn Diet. But one of the cruxes of this film is that Harold Ramis, who, who passed away a while ago, his character of Egon is a ghost, and he is unseen for most of the movie, guiding what is discovered to be his granddaughter, played by McKenna Grace, in the discovery of, like, the history of the Ghostbusters. They inherit this old farm that Egon retreated to that has all of the gear, all of the history, all of the the, the, the doohickeys and the fun toys and stuff, and she kind of slowly discovers more and more about her kind of family's legacy. At the very end of the film, they're fighting Gozer again. They're fighting the two demon dogs. Gozer this time played in a cameo by Olivia Wilde, apparently, um, which I didn't mind. I didn't mind them bringing back Gozer. It's fine. Let's let's get this guy out of the way so that we can move on to other you know ghostly things in the sequels. I'm okay with it. But during the film, they're all trying to use the the separate proton packs to capture Gozer. And the original trio of Ghostbusters show up. Ernie Hudson and Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray show up. They're all geared up and they help the kids fight Gozer. And then there's a point where Harold Ramis shows up as the ghost of Egon. And it's a it's a ghost, so it's a special effect. It's kind of almost like a force ghost. It's blue and see-through and glowy. But Harold Ramis has been dead for a few years now. And... I personally didn't mind it. I didn't mind the fact that we are using the CGI, you know, composition of a dead performer to pay kind of homage and legacy to his performance because then the ghost 
once it helps defeat Gozer, you know, disappears into the afterlife, into whatever, uh, particles up into the sky or what have you. And in my brain, I really kind of assumed that, and, and I could be wrong, but I kind of assumed that in order for something like this to happen, all of the right people who needed to make that call, people in Harold Ramis's family, his friends, his loved ones, they were all consulted in, in deciding to make a CGI creation of him that looks fairly convincing as a ghost. Like, obviously it's CGI, but if you were to tell me, like, that was just Harold Ramis with, like, a special effect filter over him, I'm, I could be talked into it. And so I'm curious as to your guys', your, 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 I'm curious as to all of you good movie buddies out there as to what you think the morality of bringing back dead celebrities is, you know? Is, is there, is there a, a complicated question of who gets to give permission? Does the audience have a say um, if everyone who signs off on it does? Everyone who should sign off on it does? Because there were a number of reviews and reactions who thought that bringing back Harold Ramis in this way was gross and cynical and really left them rubbed the wrong way. And, and there is definitely a conversation to be had about corporations using the dead images or the images of dead celebrities to promote their new thing there's definitely a conversation about the the decency of that but like i said like harold ramus's daughter gave an interview she seemed to be on board with it and if everybody was on board with it was on board with it the only person who's not is harold ramus and that type of lack of autonomy in the way that your image is utilized is really interesting will it be written into contracts in the future will it be written into wills and testaments um, by these celebrities i got to imagine that that many are considering it now if they haven't already from my perspective it worked i got a little misty eyed when he showed up i thought the connection between grandfather and granddaughter worked well it worked with me i did not feel icky about it i did not feel emotionally questionable about it but I think people have to answer those questions. I think people need to ask those questions at the very least if you can't find answers to them. And so Ghostbusters Afterlife, again, I thought was a really, really fun movie. I had a good time with it. I thought the music was a throwback. I thought, you know, everything in it I enjoyed for the most part. But there are definitely questions as to how dangerous nostalgia can be, uh, especially when it's weaponized to sell product. Uh, how dangerous nostalgia can be, especially if it's used to bring back dead people as CGI puppets to do their song and dance for you once more. I don't have the answers, guys. I'm just asking the questions. And my personal experience, especially with Harold Ramis, you know, being recreated for Ghostbusters Afterlife was it worked for me. With all that being said, let's talk about the next movie. Now, Ghostbusters Afterlife is only able to be viewed in theaters right now. So by giving it movie theater popcorn, check it out. Go check it out. Go to the movies if you can safely, if you can wear a mask, if it's playing near you, check it out. Go out to the movies, support movie theaters. They definitely need it right now. The next three movies I'm going to be talking about are all available for you to watch from the comfort of your own homes. And the first one I am going to talk about is Red Notice. Now, Red Notice was touted as Netflix's most expensive film. It is a global heist caper film starring The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, Ryan Reynolds, and Gal Gadot. And I got to say, I, I had a lot of fun with it. I The way that I would describe it is that it's a lot of fun, 
but it's very slight. It's very low-calorie, light-snacking. Um, big efforts to make these 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 big action sequences that I don't care what argument you have about being able to watch you know movies from your phone or from your television or whatever. The the big action just doesn't play as well on the small screen. Just those are just facts. Like when you are sitting in a movie theater and you are looking up at a fifty foot tall screen or, or however your screen is at your movie theater, you are enraptured you are brought into the action that screen is so big it takes up an entire wall you can't look away and unless you're like good friend of the podcast melanie figler not a lot of people have that big kind of theater experience built into their house i still found red notice to be really fun i think that uh the rock the Ryan Reynolds, Gal Gadot, they are all having an absolute blast in this movie. I think Gal Gadot gets to have way more of a personality than she's been able to have in her Wonder Woman movies or the Fast and Furious movies or the stuff that she was in. You know, and listen, she's great as Wonder Woman, don't get me wrong, but she doesn't really get to be super playful as Wonder Woman. And she's just right there with Ryan Reynolds and The Rock here who are two of the bigger personality type actors in Hollywood, she goes toe to toe with them with sarcasm, with the, the witty banter that you expect. And, and frankly, all of them having as much fun as they are look to be having is infectious. You can't help but have fun with these three, even if it's just them riffing, even if it's just them arguing or improving, which I'm almost certain Ryan Reynolds got like carte blanche to just improv whatever he wanted they really help make the movie more than it is. Uh, Red Notice is allegedly Netflix's biggest release. They said something like 145 million hours of the film have been watched, but I have no idea what that means. Like, the, the fact that they judge hours rather than, like, total views is incredibly suspect to me. Like, how can you how can you put out a movie and say, people have watched 145 hours of it? That means, and I don't have the math here. I didn't do the math. But that means, like, 200 million people, or no, let's, let's like, two, that means 280, 290 million people around the globe could have watched half of it. Cool. What, what does that, what does that even mean? You know, if somebody watches 140 million hours of something, that means you times that by, I don't know, my math is all off, but it doesn't account for full views. And so I think that's weird and I think that's shady, but you can't deny the star power behind the film and that it probably got people to watch this movie. I think probably one of the weakest aspects of Red Notice is that sometimes the scenes in the filmmaking show because this film was was made completely, well, almost completely, almost entirely in Atlanta due to COVID. They shot most of this movie in Atlanta, and then they kind of went around and did some pickup shots in some some other locations. And sometimes it shows. Sometimes you can say, ah, they're very clearly not in Italy right there. Or they're very clearly not on some Russian mountainside. You know, that that's... COVID made a lot of things weird, and, and it is what it is, but sometimes those seem show. You really can't look past them. I think what was really interesting about this movie is just what they were trying to do with it. 
it is a weird combination of like Ocean's Eleven, Thomas Crown Affair, but also films like National Treasure and Indiana Jones. It has all of the globe-trotting adventure type stuff that you would see in a movie where they're trying to chase after some type of mythical artifact, right? Like the like the Holy Grail or like the Ark of the Covenant or like the the Book of Secrets from National Treasure 2 or what have you. But it also has a lot of the cat and mouse, you know, law chasing the criminals, working with the criminals of most cops and robber heist crime films. It has The Rock as an FBI agent who uses Ryan Reynolds as an arrested art thief to chase down Gal Gadot, Gal Gadot excuse me, as who's uh, 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 the new, you know, number one art thief. I love how movies always have the, this guy's the number one art thief in the world. Like, how is that, who's grading that? <laughs> who's, who's judging whether or not this is the number one art thief in the world? But, again, it's really funny. It's, it's a good movie to watch on a big screen. And it's got a little bit of swearing in it. It's not hyper-violent. It's not hyper-sexualized. Really good use of a PG-13 F-word, uh, if my memory serves me correctly. And I would watch more of this trio doing similar things, doing heists and trying to capture each other. Like, I think when, <laughs> when, when it's something like this that is clearly built to build a franchise, potentially, you know, one of the biggest questions is, would you watch more or would you not watch more? I would watch more. I would watch more of Red Notice. I'm going to give Red Notice... Uh, Microwave popcorn and a soda. I'm going to put it a little better than your mileage may vary, but not quite movie theater popcorn, mostly because you can't watch it in a movie uh, or in a movie theater, at least right now. Maybe you can. Maybe Netflix still has it out in, in major markets. So, you know, if you're in L.A. or New York or Chicago or somewhere where you are a major filmmaking market, then go check it out in a movie theater. What's up, good movie buddies? Before we continue, I want to remind everyone that you can get free episodes of The Popcorn Diet delivered to you just by hitting the subscribe button or following us wherever you're listening from. So take a second, hit the button, give us a rating, write us a review, share us with the other good movie buddies out there. We also want to remind you to check us out on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash the popcorn diet and consider Becoming a patron of this little independent movie podcast filled with love. Not only is it going to help us improve the podcast, keep the podcast going, but it's also going to give you exclusive patron-only access to things like early episodes, franchise refills episodes, and more. So check that out by going to patreon.com slash thepopcorndiet. Of course, we don't want you to forget that you can also follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, at thepopcorndiet. And last but certainly not least... You can find all of our latest regular episodes, articles, and more on our website, popcorndietpodcast.com. Let's get back to it. All right, our next movie that I wanted to break down for you is Home Sweet Home Alone. This one is a little weird. <laughs> Home Sweet Home Alone is a legacy sequel reboot of the Home Alone franchise. Disney bought up Fox, and with that purchase of Fox, they bought the Home Alone IP, intellectual property. And so, of course, let's make another Home Alone film. You can find this movie on Disney Plus right now, and it is almost identical from the first movie. A kid gets left home alone during the holidays by his family, and he 
thinks that he is under attack from outside robbers and has to defend the house. I think that the, the you know the really interesting thing is that I was worried that a Disneyfied Home Alone version a Disney Disneyified version of Home Alone would not have as hardcore of traps that we have seen particularly in the first two Home Alone movies. The third one's still pretty good and I never watched the the direct to video ones. But those traps were hardcore like they put Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern through the ringer and weirdly enough this movie gets the traps right. They are nice and violent. But the thing about Home Sweet Home Alone is that get, it gets everything else really, really wrong. And it is one of the most egregious examples of not understanding the formula that made the originals work that I maybe have ever seen. It is a movie that just does not work, despite the fact that there are some really talented people involved. Archie Yates plays the kid. He was in Jojo Rabbit. He was um, the best friend, scene stealer in that movie, and he's he plays Max, the kid in this movie. He's a little bit older than Macaulay Culkin was. I think Archie Yates is playing 10, um, and Macaulay was playing 8, so... I don't know what the big difference there is, but he's kind of a jerk. Like, Kevin McAllister was kind of a jerk, but he also had good points. This kid's kind of just a jerk that you really, it's difficult to, to root for in a weird way. The other thing is it's got incredibly funny people involved all over the place. It was written by Mikey Day and Streeter Seidel. Mikey Day is obviously from Saturday Night Live. Streeter Seidel is from College Humor responsible for some of the funniest stuff in the heyday of collegehumor.com. But you also have a cast that is filled with funny people. Rob Delaney, Ellie Cumper, Andy Daly, Keenan Thompson, Pete Holmes, Chris Parnell is in like one scene and given nothing to do. Timothy Simons, who's the best part of, of this movie and in Veep and like literally anything that Tim Simons is in, he's, he's the funniest. He's such a jerk and it's so freaking funny. And then a cameo from Jim Rash, who was actually a, <laughs> was actually a funny cameo. Now that I think about it, and it does have a few um, minor glimpses of 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 actually being very funny, but the rest of the movie just doesn't work. And in order to explain why, I have to talk spoilers. I'm going to give it a popcorn rating. I've I've yet to give a burnt popcorn rating out, and that streak will continue. Home Sweet Home Alone is not burnt popcorn, but it is very, very stale popcorn. I think there are things to enjoy about it. I would love to hear from you, good movie buddies, on your thoughts on Home Sweet Home Alone. Shoot us a message uh, on Twitter, at The Popcorn Diet, on Instagram, at The Popcorn Diet. I want to know what you think about Home Sweet Home Alone, but it did not work for me. And I'm going to tell you why. Spoilers, if you care, for Home Sweet Home Alone right now. The robbers are good guys. Like, they are a, a mom and a dad who are trying to avoid having to sell their house before Christmas and tell the kids that they have to sell the house that they grew up in, okay? Like, they are, they're not just like, Oh, they! Oh, the robbers have a point. 
Like, they're good guys. They are trying to do a good thing. They are just trying to get a valuable doll back that they think Max, the kid, stole from them. It's perfectly reasonable, except they do nothing reasonable about it. They do not behave like normal people. They do not behave like human beings. They do not communicate properly. They do not try to... They are really poor problem solvers. And... Again, the kid is kind of a jerk already, but when they go to the house to try and get the doll back, like they, they don't speak the way normal people would. They don't act the way normal people would. They're literally talking to themselves about how we're just going to get that ugly little boy and we're going to sell it on the internet, sell him on the internet. They keep referring to the doll as a human with like human pronouns like him and and that ugly little boy and we're going to sell him on the internet and so the kid thinks that they're talking about him the kid it just doesn't make any sense Ev- anyone at any point in time could have stepped up to talk and just be like hey kid you know we w- hey we're looking for this doll blah 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 nobody has that conversation till the very end and the fact that the traps are as violent as they are which is to say very violent. Like Ellie Kemper gets her shoes burnt off and her feet are burnt to a crisp. Rob Delaney, I'm sure, gets concussed with a billiards ball straight to the forehead. You know, they have nerf darts with little thumbtacks in 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 the heads of them shot into their faces and into their fingers. Like, like it is incredibly violent, which I support 100%. But when it is being committed, when those acts of violence are being committed on characters that you actually are rooting for, it makes the entire Home Alone experience really weird and really awkward. You know, in the original movies, you wanted Harry and Marv to get their just desserts. These guys are criminals. They're thieves and robbers and they're jerks. And they and they a whole movie, they're just reveling in it. Like, ha ha, we're so smart. We're the bad guys stealing from people. They're almost cartoonish in how villainous they are. But they pose a real threat to Kevin and his dad's, you know, whatever his dad does for work to afford that rich, rich, you know, house in Chicago. You want to see those guys get their just desserts. That what that is what makes that movie so satisfying. And instead, they flip the script. They have the kid kind of be a jerk and the robbers be good guys. And it makes the entire thing almost unbearable to watch. Almost like, I don't want this to happen. Stop happening. Somebody have a normal, regular conversation. And not only that, but it's on Disney+. Plus, and some of the effects just look bad. Like there's a scene where he's chucking... Uh, soda bottles filled with Mentos down at them, and the CGI just does not look good. Um, there's a moment where um, he's launching like packs of flour at him, and the CGI just does not look good. And this is the last thing I'll say on it. Two of like one of the, one of the things I loved about Home Alone was was the in, the ingenuity or the, the 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 engineering that went into some of the traps. Some of them being simplistic and harmful and painful, like the uh, ornaments underneath the windowsills as booby traps or the micro machines as booby traps. And then some of them borderline lethal, you know, like paint cans to the faces or dropping irons onto people's heads and things of that nature. The thing is, is that Kevin really only used a gun once. And I guess he did use his BB gun. So I guess that's fair. But like two of the things that Max does in this movie involve 
a Nerf gun that has all of the Nerf darts filled with uh, with with thumbtacks, so that when you shoot them at somebody, they get stabbed. And then a, I think it's a snowball gun. It's it's an air powered gun that I think is established to use for shooting snowballs that he fills with billiards balls. And I kind of feel like it's not really that ingenious if the kid is defending his house with what is effectively two guns. You know, I, I it's not that I have a problem with that. It's just that it's not as ingenious as lighting somebody's head on fire with a torch or having them walk through a <laughs> walk through a doorway covering their face in silicone and then blowing feathers on them like those types of things are creative and ingenious and yes very 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 specific for the bad guys to do the exact thing that they need to do to fall into those traps but at least they were more creative than i have a gun that shoots billiards balls i don't know what do you guys think? Do you, has any of you seen Home Alone's Home Sweet Home Alone? Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Because it just did not work for me. Anything else beyond that is just pontificating, which you all know I love to do. Home Sweet Home Alone is a loss for me. I think kids will probably like it. You know, who doesn't like seeing, you know, slapstick comedy? And there are there is boatloads of slapstick comedy in this movie. But I, I struggled through it. I thought it was one of the weirdest movies that I have ever seen because it just does not understand that what made Home Alone so magical was a good kid, a kind-hearted kid who was learning a lesson about growing up, taking out these bad guys. It's important to note, Max doesn't really learn any lesson either. He misses his family like an hour after they're gone, and he wants them back. It's weird. It's just a weird movie. It rubs me the wrong way. Home Sweet Home Alone, stale popcorn. If you absolutely have to, give it a whirl. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum, the last movie that I wanted to talk about was, was King Richard. Now, King Richard is available to see in movie theaters right now, so I highly recommend checking it out, but it is also on HBO Max. And... Uh, Honestly, I think this might be the best movie to see during the holiday season. I think this is um, perfect for the family. Perfect. The perfect movie to sit around with the family to watch. Uh, it is the story of Richard Williams, who is the father of Venus and Serena Williams. Frankly, it's not really the story of Richard Williams, but it is really the story of Venus and Serena growing up and all of the things that Richard Williams did to help them succeed and to turn them into two of the greatest female athletes that have ever walked the planet. Uh, and I love this movie. I absolutely loved King Richard. I think it is a really good old-fashioned sports story. A really good old-fashioned sports story about how hard work and determination are incredibly important. How, how important it is to be true to yourself and to not let the toxicity of competition seep into your desire for greatness and what that means to desire greatness and the amount of work that goes in to greatness. And as someone who isn't into tennis, it really did help contextualize the uphill battle that led to the Williams sisters' greatness. Because I knew they were great at Venus and Serena Williams. I, I could never watch a second of tennis in my life, and I know that Venus and Serena Williams are 
two of the premier names in tennis or have been two of the premier names in tennis for nearly 20 years. But I didn't have the context. I didn't have the context of just how unique they were coming up in the mid-90s, of just how talented they were. And boy, does this movie do a really good job of contextualizing that and showing the hard work that they went through and showing the hard work that their father put in to get them where they are. Um, I mean, Will Smith should win an Oscar. There's, there's, like, if Will Smith doesn't win an Oscar, we riot. What's crazy is that this is coming at a time where we are getting some phenomenal performances. I'll be interested to see how the best actor race shakes out this year. But Will Smith is incredible in this movie. There are five or six scenes where he just breaks your heart or enrages you or makes you laugh. It's, it's, an, it's a movie star performance. It's a transformative performance, um, which is, frankly, becoming more and more popular amongst movie stars. You know, you need to get that transformative performance in there if you want Oscar recognition nowadays. And he's not the only one, too. The entire movie is filled with fantastic performances. Um, Anjanou Ellis uh, is phenomenal. Anjanou Ellis plays um, Serena and uh, Serena and Venus's mother, uh, Brandy, who is also, like, almost, not, I don't want to say equally responsible, but has a significant amount of responsibility in shaping those two girls and, and those two women into who they are. You know, Brandy Price as a person is recognized as a coach of Venus and Serena Williams and still a coach um, of Venus and Serena Williams. And, you know, obviously people have been talking about more of her as a mother, but she put just as much coaching in. Um, and I think that's incredible. Uh, Sania Sidney and Demi Singleton as Venus and Serena Williams. God, they're incredible. What a couple of discoveries these two girls are. Um, Sydney's been around. She was in Fences. She's been in Hidden Figures. She's, she's done some stuff. Um, so this is by no means her, her first rodeo. Um, but Demi Singleton hasn't hardly done anything. And they are incredible. Incredible. As Venus and Serena Williams, they, at such a young age, are able to convey the, the determination, but also the, 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 the childlikeness. Like, these are children. And the joy that they have and the innocence that they have. But, all, but like I said, also their determination at wanting to be great. They light up the scenes that they are in. They are incredible as Venus and Serena. Um, and then I got it. I mean, the, the whole cast is stacked. You got Dylan McDermott in it. You got Tony Goldwyn in it. Um, but I got to give a special shout out to my guy, John Bernthal as uh, Rick, uh, Rick Macy. I think is how you pronounce his last name. Most people know Bernthal as the Punisher. Most people know him as playing uh, or, or Shane from the walking dead. And they know him as playing gruff hard asses. And his performance in this movie is just really delightful. He is just high energy, super supportive, obviously incredibly frustrated with Richard Williams' style and plans and things like that. But I really loved Bernthal's performance in this movie. Him and Will Smith have some really good scenes together. And... Gosh, he's just not playing your typical Bernthal, and I really, really enjoyed that. Like I said, 
the movie is is I think incredibly family friendly. I'm not sure what it's rated. Is it rated? It can't be rated PG thirteen. King. Yeah, it might be rated PG thirteen. Actually, I know. Yeah, it is PG thirteen. I know of one specific scene that would cause it to be PG thirteen. There's almost no cursing in the film. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Bernthal's character actually goes out of his way to say um, "freaking." And uh, uh, another word that, that that is a substitute of a, of a curse word that I, I thought was really entertaining. Um, it's incredibly feel good. It has got an incredible message. It's an incredible history lesson, and I think absolutely should absolutely everybody should watch King Richard. I think it's going to be potentially a, a big player in the award season, and uh, and I just really enjoyed it. I just really really enjoyed it and a lot of people you know there have been there has been lots of talk about how it's a movie called King Richard and it's a biographical drama about Richard Williams and how it takes the accomplishments of two of the greatest women athletes of all time two of the greatest African-American women athletes of all time African-American women who who broke into a mostly white elitist game of tennis and dominated Right. A lot of people have been talking about how this movie takes the accomplishments of Venus and Serena and puts the focus on their dad. Right. And I listen, I get it. But you should watch the movie. Number one. And number two, you should do additional reading. You know, there are a lot of articles out there right now talking about how the Williams sisters signed off on this film. They are executive producers on King Richard. They willingly put their names on it to tell this story in this way. There's even a clip online of Will Smith talking to the Williams sisters about how they were going to be executive producers, but they weren't sure if they wanted to be recognized as executive producers until they saw the movie. And again, going back to the conversation I was having earlier in the spoiler section about Ghostbusters Afterlife, if the right people sign off on a story, then there is an interesting dichotomy of what the viewership and the public get to I, I personally think there's an interesting dichotomy between the viewership and the public and what they get to say about that particular work of storytelling um in this case them saying oh how dare they make a movie all about king richard when venus and serena actually signed off on this movie and we're like this is how we want this part of the story to be told you know because a lot of people disregard the historical context of of how Richard Williams was portrayed in the media, who was bombastic and who was rude, even if those things were true. Um, and this movie really shows that a lot. Um, but oftentimes as a bad influence on the girls and as somebody who was a spotlight stealer. And he, the character of Richard Williams, is challenged on that a number of times in this movie. And I just find that interesting. I think that that's interesting in the context of the film, in the context of the way it was made, in the context of Serena and Venus Williams putting their names on it and saying, this is how we want this story to be told. Because Richard Williams was always one who was framed as in the wrong, right? Um, there was, I, I was just reading an article that I don't have in front of me about one tennis player who like nudged Venus, who gave her a real disrespectful nudge and how Venus just didn't acknowledge, like just didn't turn, didn't walk away, didn't engage. And Richard Williams came off afterwards talking all kinds of mad smack because that girl was disrespectful to Venus. And everybody painted Richard as the one that was wrong, even though that one uh, tennis player 
got suspended for bad behavior. She got ridiculed and disciplined a number of times. Richard was still the one that was framed as in the wrong there. And frankly, I admire the Williams sisters for wanting to tell the story of their success in a way that that credits their father's hard work and their father's determination, not just to make them great, not just to put a plan in place to allow them to succeed in this world, but to also keep them grounded as children, to keep them protected as children and as competitors. And I think one of my favorite parts of the movie is how it shows um, the way the Williams sisters were raised to handle hardship and defeat versus the way a lot of other tennis parents are. And listen, I'm not saying that every tennis parent is the same way or every sports parent is the same way or, or, or every um, whatever your kid does. You know, the parent is the same way. But you see it a lot in this movie where the parents are yelling and screaming and they're projecting all of their disappointments and all of their inadequacies on their children because their children lose a game, right? And I don't think that's necessarily tied to tennis, but I do think it's tied into a certain, you know, a certain style of parenting, one that lacks emotional intelligence, one that lacks um, uh, understanding and context and things like that. And I really, again, I just appreciated the way that Venus and Serena decided, like, this is how we want this story to be told. Far be it from me, you know, a, a, a straight white guy to, to tell, you know, anybody in the African-American community how to tell their story. But not for nothing, like, it's also a story of a father who's present. You know, there's a moment in this film where, where Richard is connecting with Venus in a way that that made me cry, telling a story about his own father. And, um, you know, that type of... That type of responsibility that a father takes on or any parent takes on can be so easy to disregard or run away from. Um, if you don't have the mental toughness, if you don't have the emotional toughness, if you don't have the ability to um, process emotions and process history and your own experiences as a person and really strive to not project them onto your kids or overcompensate them onto your kids. And, uh, I mean, you just look at where Venus and Serena are now. Look at where Venus and Serena are now and you tell me what Richard Williams did wrong. You know what I mean? That kind of thing I think is incredibly powerful and I think that's what makes it uh, an amazing movie that I am giving perfect popcorn. I think that if you can see this on a movie theater, if you can get your family out, if you are somebody who values the theater-going experience, take your family to go see King Richard this Thanksgiving weekend. Do them that solid. I promise you that you your money and your time will be well spent. If you can't get out to the movie theater, that's fine. Listen, it's awesome that you have the ability to watch it on HBO Max right now. But regardless, an incredible film with an incredible performance that I, I can't imagine anybody not liking um, overall. But that is going to do it for this review recap episode. Before we go, I want to remind you all again that you can get free episodes of The Popcorn Diet sent to you just by hitting subscribe or hitting that follow button. So take a second, hit the button, give us a rating, write us a review, and share us with your other good movie buddies. We also don't want you to forget that you can check us out on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash The Popcorn Diet and consider becoming 
you know, supporting an independent film podcast at a time when film so desperately needs our support right now. Check us out, patreon.com slash the popcorn diet. Of course, we don't want you to forget that you can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram at the popcorn diet. And last but certainly not least, you can find all of our latest regular episodes, articles, and more on our website, popcorndietpodcast.com. But for the absent Canadian machine, Mr. David Melhorn, I am your very best good movie buddy, Rick Williamson. I will see you next time after Thanksgiving with another good movie on the Popcorn Diet. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Adios.